You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Racism, white supremacy, slavery, mutation, and lion stabbing. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Sai was a fearsome sight. His dark skin glistened, sweat slicked through the garments that hung in skimpy tatters from his massive frame. Crimson crusted wounds scored his body like glyphs inscribed by devils. Dried blood matted his woolly hair. His face was hardened into an implacable mask of hatred. Unrequited vengeance flickered like a torch in his eyes. Yet beneath the lamina of that emotion lay a core of grief so bitter it threatened to consume him entirely. Tomorrow, 1981, by Charles R. Saunders. Robert E. Howard and his contemporaries were products of their time. Racism in the form of white supremacy was an integral part of that popular culture of the early decades of the 20th century, and as such it pervaded Pulp Fiction. As products of a later time during which the tenets of racism came under vigorous challenge, my enjoyment of fiction from past decades was often compromised by the racial attitudes I encountered in my reading. On some occasions, I simply let it slide. On others, I wrestled with the resentment. Then I discovered a way to resolve my dilemma. Interest in African history and culture surged during the 1960s, and at the same time I was reading sword and sorcery and science fiction, I was also absorbing heretofore unknown information about a continent that was not as dark as its detractors made it out to be. I realized that this non-stereotypical Africa of history and legend was just as valid setting for fantasy stories as was the ancient and medieval Europe that served as the common default setting for everything from Conan to Lord of the Rings. I, a character came into my head then, Imaro, a black man who could stand alongside mythical warrior heroes like Beowulf and Hercules, as well as fictional creations like Conan and Cull. Charles R. Saunders in 2001. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Proster. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about uh, Imaro, a... Um, a black sword and sorcery character, or uh, from sort of the first in a, a subgenre called Sword and Soul. Um, uh, that's sort of the the name that's uh, take been uh, applied to this genre, and um, uh, Son- the the creator of this character, Saunders, um, embraced it. Um, and actually, um, the the quote I just read is is from a um, uh, introduction to a, a collection of 
called Sword Sword and Soul that was um, um, by other authors sort of writing in a, in the same milieu. So um, uh, we'll we'll cut to ads now and we'll come back afterwards. So we'll be right back after this. If you're a shrewd shopper, it's about to be your favorite time of the year. Hyperx will be running massive sales for the holiday season. Get up to 50% off some of our most popular products, like the Ultra Comfy Cloud 2 headset, the tough, responsive Alloy Origins mechanical keyboard, and the fan favorite Quadcast USB microphone. Sales will be going on at all major e-tailers, but be sure to head to HyperX.com and sign up for the newsletter to get the scoop on the biggest deals. Happy holidays from HyperX. I'm Colette. And I'm Matt. It's time to talk about the most important topic facing humanity. Climate video games. change. Oh, okay, video games. <laughs> Every week on Colette and Matt have entered the chat. We have in-depth conversations about the games we're currently playing. We also talk to people who make video games as well as YouTubers, writers, and podcasters that you already know and love. We also talk about what you're playing when you join our community. Subscribe so, to yes. Colette and Matt have entered the chat wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Um, science fiction and fantasy. He was a big fan. Um, he, he apparently got uh, interested from Andre Norton, who's a, a writer we um, I keep I know of, but I actually haven't uh, read her work. It is a she, right? Uh, Andre Norton. You know what? I I'm not clear on that actually. That's uh, yeah. Hang on, just yeah, yeah, it, it's a woman. So we yeah, should okay. we should look at her at some point because. Uh, mm. um, she she seems influential, but uh, I haven't actually read her work. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of what started him out, and he, he got into like Conan the Barbarian and Tarzan and and stuff. Yeah. But um, uh, even even Lovecraft and so on, like uh, he he was a he was a fanboy. But he started to realize that as a black kid in America, uh, a lot of the authors of these books uh, seemed to hate him personally. If when they weren't outright ignoring him. Um, he he uh, wrote uh, essays for, for fan magazines for a while. Uh, uh, one of his sort of early ones that made a big splash was called... Um, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't write this one down, but it was something like uh, Die, You Black Dog. And it was about um, seeing these attitudes reflected in all the, the books. He Like, he was trying to love them, but... Mm -hmm. They didn't seem to love him back, you know? Right. The Lovecraft Country thing. Sorry, yeah. did you say that was an essay or it was a fictional it, essay. Uh, book? Okay. Yeah, yeah just, just a short essay. I, I read it, but it, it was a couple weeks ago. Sorry about that. Um, um, and yeah, in that one, it was written before uh, Amaro was a, was a thing. Um, and um, yeah, he, he seemed very extremely frustrated, as, as is understandable. Um, like you mentioned, even like modern fantasy writers at the time, like um, Fritz Lieber and so on, they weren't like as they weren't like blatantly racist, like like Robert E. Howard could be, but they uh, seem to replace that by just sort of ignoring the the idea that black people exist or right. barely touching on it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, that's know, the it, irony is that there's there's actually lot. It's it, like he he said uh, medieval Europe is the default for Conan or for Robert E. Howard, but that's not necessarily true. He's pretty wide ranging. He goes to the equivalent of the Middle East and Africa and things like that. But of course, in dealing with these other cultures and peoples, he doesn't handle them with any kind of 
uh, sensitivity. They're 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 handled very racistly. So the irony is that it's like a pretty diverse cast in the Conan stories, but handled with a lot of racism. Yeah. Whereas uh, a lot uh, of characters, yeah, a lot of other but, authors. Uh, he actually, um, a friend of the show, Philby, uh, when I mentioned that I was going to be um, talking about Amaro in an episode, they um, uh, gave, uh, pointed me towards some essays uh, that he wrote in various. Um, magazines uh throughout the 70s and 80s um uh let's see um and one was called uh um it was from uh, dragon magazine no sorry it was from uh, savage sword of conan number 56 it was an essay called to cushion beyond the black kingdoms of the Hi- hyborian age so that's uh all about the sort of examining the culture of the um uh, Conan equivalent of Africa as as it was in Conan's time and how he interacted it uh, interacted with it uh, a lot of cannibalism mm. yeah but yeah the, the, that essay is written as like a historical document like a, a, as if Conan was a real thing that he was researching as a historian <laughs> mm. <laughs> that's kind of clever yeah um, yeah yeah and it uh as an aside, he also uh, uh, wrote one for Dragon Mag- Dragon Magazine, uh, issue 122 in 1987, called uh, Out of Africa, which is um, about, um, uh, yeah, j- just uh, uh, listing off, like, various cryptids and, and monsters and, and actual, uh, the actual mythologies and folklore of, of various African countries um, uh, for use in, like, possible use in role-playing games and stuff to just sort of um, diversify out um, the kinds of monsters you see so it's not just griffins and dragons and stuff. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That seems to have been a thing Dungeons and Dragons really went wild for is to, like, look for new monster ideas, basically, from all the different cultures. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, um, so, yes, um, in... Uh, oh, apparently the, the idea for Amaro first came to him... Uh, and this might be a joke, but uh, he said he was watching one of the old Tarzan movies, and he just kept imagining uh, a black, an actual black guy coming out and just kicking Tarzan's ass. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably accurate, more or less. I mean, yeah. he's saying it flippantly, but that's probably the general idea. Yeah. Um, so in uh, uh, 1969, he was drafted into Vietnam, and uh, he uh, very understandably uh, went to Canada. Um, uh, he lived here in Toronto for about, uh, uh, 15 or 13 years. I, I'm saying one or two of the others, but they're flipping in my mind, my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, he, um, uh, went, he, uh, moved to Nova Scotia, uh, Halifax, uh, where he, he lived for the rest of his life. Um, he was primarily worked as a, uh, uh, journalist. He was a, uh, uh, reporter for the, um, Halifax Daily News, uh, from uh, 1985 to the paper's closing in 2008. Uh, he wrote about uh, black issues in, in the local area. Uh, he also wrote a lot about uh, boxing. He was uh, uh, apparently like considered the um, foremost authority on Canadian boxing, which is interesting. Huh, um, interesting. He was the That's actually fight- funny because Ro- uh, Robert E. Howard was a boxer, too. He really does seem to have wanted to follow in Robert E. Howard's footsteps yeah. in many ways. Yeah. In, in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. With a, with a, you know, 
yeah, but the but he he seems to have admired Darby Howard a lot and just been frustrated by the racism aspect of yeah. his work. Uh, he was yeah vice president of boxing for the Society of North American Sports Historians and Researching, so that's interesting as well. Like, um, he is um, and I, I guess he, he wrote a lot of books on on boxing and stuff, and you can see uh, him being able to write fights well in these books. Like, I think the fights are some of the best parts, and I think these. Mm -hmm. Amaro books are actually very well written, but we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, uh, so yes, uh, Imaro, the, uh, he wrote, uh, a number of short stories featuring the characters published in various magazines and stuff. And, uh, finally in 1981, he collected, um, the ones he had written so far into a book, um, uh, which, um, you've read most of, you said. Yeah, yeah, one. I didn't. I wasn't quite able uh, to finish the, just some some issues interceded, so I wasn't quite able to finish the um, uh, the first book. But yeah, it's clearly um, it's interesting because it's a fix up. It's it's not even really a novel. It's a collection of short stories. Yeah. But there there is a an evolving storyline. Like it doesn't. It's not like Robert E. Howard would just write a story and then he'd write another story and he would just start from scratch every time, which is classic for pulp uh, pulp fiction right up until at least the sixties. Uh, but at the time that Saunders was writing, uh, people liked a bit more, they were a bit more into continuing narratives and so on. And it's clear that he was like, even though the stories are self-contained and discreet, um, they, they, uh, like he sets up another story in each one and he's setting up a larger narrative that's running throughout the background of them, which is really cool. That's a very satisfying way of doing it. I thought. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the, the books go from his, his infancy up to, um, uh, at least uh, from what I've been able to read, we'll, we'll get into that, but half this series is not uh, in print. Um, and I, I very unfortunate, uh, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but uh, uh, basically his infancy to early 20s, you know, um, from, you know, uh, well, well, we'll talk about the story here. Um, so his... Uh, uh, he was from a uh, tribe called the Iliasai, who are sort of um, thinly veiled, veiled um, uh, versions of the uh, Maasai um, tribe in, in actual Africa. Um, you know, they, they put uh, a clay in their hair and uh, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, they're, ca they're cattle, cattle farmers, and they have a strong warrior culture. That's all from the Maasai, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. they're, and they're on a, a plane called a tambourine. Um, and I, I should mention this whole series takes place in a, in a land called, um, Nyumbani, which is, uh, Swahili, uh, Swahili for home. A lot of the words in this are taken from Swahili and other African languages. Mm. Um. Yeah, I was wondering uh, about that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, like, like I, uh, yeah, he, he really dove deep into, into research to find, um, um, interesting things to gather for for story ideas. Um, the Iliasai uh, 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 tribe have a uh, um, taboo against um, uh, women having children with members outside of the tribe. It's explicit that men can have children with women outside of the tribe, and those children are accepted by the tribe. But uh, the other way, you know, it's a, it's a double standard. <laughs> Um, yeah, he has. They, they, he has kind of a, um, 
uh, yeah, he, he's he's got some. He doesn't have a high, the, the the fictional version of the Maasai. These fictional versions of Maasai, obviously, they're not real Maasai. So you could, you, you, it's not dunking on the Maasai per se. But he's got some criticisms of the culture of, that he's created here. Uh, although he has some other aspects in which he seems to respect them. He says they're, they're you know, they're always about fairness and justice and so forth. Except then they're kind of hypocritical about it as well. But yeah, he's he's he, like Imaro. And I mean, we're seeing it through Amaro's eyes as well, which he's he has some uh, a lot of resentment against the Iliasi because they don't treat him that well. Uh, by the end, at the end, they do come around to respecting him, and he kind of rejects them. But um, yeah, it's it's it, it seemed it seemed pretty uh, harsh on the Maasai if you're going to read it straight up as the, the Maasai with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah, yeah, I, I I should say like inspired by the Maasai rather than. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And all all the other sort of cultures in the book are, are based on uh, different uh, places places and times in in African history. So, um, um, yeah, it, it's somewhat yeah, and that that leads me to believe it's like a secondary fantasy world as opposed to a prehistorical thing. But there's other things that sort of imply that it's that. So, mm. um, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, unless well, if we're following, if we're following the Conan uh, rule, yeah, I hadn't. I actually that hadn't occurred to me. I kind of, I was immediately thinking of it as a secondary world fantasy. But um, you're right. If he's following the the Conan the Barbarian model, then it would be a pre uh, prehistorical uh, uh, antediluvian version of of Earth. Uh, where all the cultures just happen to be kind of the same as things that exist. Um, but yeah, as you say, it doesn't really matter. It's um, one way or the other. Yeah, the, uh, the thing yeah. that sort of made me think otherwise is that Atlantis is in it. Oh, okay. It's called, in, in book two, it's called Atlan, but it's, and the people are mm. called Atlanteans, so yeah. Well, again, that could technically be a secondary world fantasy, but yeah, that's fair. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely... Um, like interesting that like now I, I again in the first book uh there are no there are basically no white people at all in the first book um so and they do mention briefly that there's traders from beyond the sea and that there's slave trading going on in the big uh kingdoms but um like y- uh, does, does that come in later on at all or is it um uh, yeah there, there's there's a few white people in the second book they're the the uh, remnants of an atlantean outpost uh, oh, okay. And it mentions that there was a uh, war between uh, Nyambani about a thousand rains ago. Uh, years are measured as rains in this. I assume like the rainy season, not like a literal rain. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, there, there was a war uh, where. Um, uh, okay, so so the the background before we get into plot stuff, and this isn't really revealed until the end of book two, but there's. Um, uh, sort of the whole thing's a war between two sets of supernatural beings. The Mashatan, who are the uh, demon gods, and the um, uh, Cloud Striders, who are more good. Um, or at least less uh, malicious. Um, right. And uh, the Mashatan were, were once worshipped in um, uh, Nyambani, but uh, they were eventually driven out. Um and uh, they went to uh, Atlan, where they uh, became the gods of the uh, Atlanteans, um, who then um, and sort of convinced them to uh, go to uh, uh, Nyambani to uh, wage war on, on the people there, uh, which uh, led to a, a slave trade and 
yeah it, it's sort of you know thinly veiled um uh atlantic slave trade um parable mm-hmm. there uh right. though again this is all sort of backstory um and uh yeah right down to uh the the atlanteans have um a, a slur for um for the black people um naga so yeah again it's that's not uh, exactly subtle yeah yeah um the yeah i was once that started to be introduced in the second book i thought this is kind of interesting but at the same time i sort of the the idea that uh because it was sort of interesting that all the characters were black good and bad that right was sort of yeah um but it, it just turned out to be a brief excursion this was just an outpost of atlanteans the actual continent is just sinking and yeah, these that's... were just some people who were left behind that's a very interesting uh, point to me because it's kind of like it's the Star Trek thing of like you it, I want to build a world that's the kind in some in in one or two ways at least is the world I want to see. It's it's not this isn't a utopian world, but it's utopian in the sense that it's very focused it's very afrocentric. It's focused on the black people. It's not about, you know, uh their their uh the the tragedies that have befallen them it's about uh their history and like a more of a celebration in that sense of course bad things happen to the characters there's evil characters and all that kind of stuff but it's but it's focusing on that but then there's sort of the question of like well how much do you bring in of you know historical uh you know uh, uh bad bad elements and and you know like in your in your world that's meant to be aspirational it's 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 it can be a little bit of a problem if you completely leave out uh the negative elements and the uh, atrocities and things that have happened in life and you have to you can't like you can't deal seriously with a story if it's just everything's great and everyone's happy uh you know you, you, you so th- there's always that question of to what degree do you work in those ideas without you know altering the setting that you've created so that's that's an interesting thing so i mean it sounds like he might have found a good uh, compromise by not making it a huge thing but yeah yeah it's just sort of a side quest uh in the in the overall story right yeah it's like it's there you want to acknowledge that it's there but not make it the focus basically yeah yeah um uh so yeah back back to the main story um uh Imaro's mother uh had actually left the Eliasai because she found out that the um um their um uh local uh, uh priest or you know magician priest was actually worshiping the um uh the mashatan the the demon gods um but she couldn't prove it so she left she came back with a child with uh an unknown father or unknown to to the uh Iliasai. she knew but she's not telling anybody um apparently we do find out in book three but i have no idea <laughs> oh no <laughs> had to yeah book three the unavailable one okay that, <laughs> yeah. that sucks um and also a talisman that that um um uh uh cancels out his his illusions and they see him for what he really is um so uh because of that she's allowed back into the tribe on for a limited uh time until uh Amaro's seventh reign uh where uh uh he will start his warrior training at which she at which point she has to leave um and uh yeah, uh, the warrior trainee is extremely strict, and it's especially strict for Amaro because he's a... Sorry, uh, I just want to say the very cool bit that, like, when she's forced to leave, she goes, I go, but I leave behind a warrior. Yeah. 
that rules. There's a lot of there's a lot of badass lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, he gets extra punished because uh, he's the son of no father and an outsider and all that. Um, um, yeah. Uh, the 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 book also points out, you know, a, a lot of uh, stuff dealing with Africa paints it as not only one country but like one ethnic group. Right. Um, but like people from different regions in Africa have different features. We mm-hmm. um, in the West just tend to to lump the whole continent in as as one, you know, one thing. But race is a is a construct. They're like black people is no more of a thing than you know yeah i, I'm I mean explaining I, it very well but no absolutely i mean it's it's a it's as diverse as like europe would be and it's yeah. larger than europe i mean you'd you wouldn't confuse an italian with a viking right and and uh or maybe you would if you're but you know uh, white people would never confuse a viking with a with an italian they make this huge distinction and it's the same thing in, in africa like the the subs i mean if nothing else even most people are aware the sub-saharan groups are obviously different than like if you go to the north african mediterranean groups where there's more uh, middle eastern influence and uh and which does show up in this book as well uh there's a con there's a country called zanj which i believe is modeled on zanzibar which was a, an islamic country in uh or still is an islamic country in uh in africa uh, um and yeah yeah uh, actually i think zanj is yeah zanj is an actual place uh oh, um okay uh name used by medieval muslim geographers to refer to certain portions of southeast africa primarily the uh, swahili coast southeast africa okay yeah. all right my mistake uh, they do say it's on the east coast so that makes that makes sense yeah um, and this is my jargon but i know that for instance if you went up to uh uh ethiopia and and somalia you get a, a very interesting ethiopia is a fascinating place uh it was the first christian country in the world um and uh it's it's got uh people there who dis- who claim to be descended from uh the 10 lost tribes of israel and uh, uh actually that inspired uh, uh um uh, rastafarianism in uh, in uh, in jamaica uh which has some cultural practices that kind of can be traced back to judaism um anyway it's 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 really it's it's a really interesting diverse place but that's further north i guess what we see of this uh of of uh, uh niambani right is what it's called uh, um, niambani is, yeah or you know it's yeah we mostly see the uh, i guess what we're seeing is what would be the equivalent of the southern areas of africa but i guess it's hard to tell again it could be a secondary world so that geography might not apply in this particular case but yeah based on what you're saying it sounds like it's more the southern uh, areas the, the sub-saharan areas yeah i mean uh he travels a lot in in the uh first sequel and presumably the others as well mm. um so he goes to, to lots of different places but yeah um uh so uh part of the uh uh Ilyasai, uh war like to to uh the adulthood right you have to kill a lion in a ritualistic combat um and i i thought uh interesting uh world building that uh the Ilyasai considered the uh lions like reborn uh Ilyasai, um and like it's a cycle of life thing i i thought it was that uh, when you die, uh, you're, you're reborn as a lion, or your soul is contained within a lion. Apparently, slight subtle difference, uh, but yeah, as an Iliasai, you you come back as a lion, and then when the lion is killed, the soul of the Iliasai is freed. So that's why they see it like they both revere the the lions, uh, but they also 
consider it a duty to kill the lion so you can release the souls of the Eleasi. I don't remember if they say what happens to them, if they get reborn after that, or they're just free to yeah, um, go to... Uh, there's actually a story that's not in the book that uh, takes place in Amaro's early life that, again, uh, Philby pointed me towards. It was published in one of the, um, I believe, Dragon Magazine again. Like, ve very odd place for just this, like, mid-quel <laughs> uh, of a story that they that the readers probably didn't know about, but, you know, um, it's good that it's out there, but it's the, the origin of how Imaro got, uh, got, uh, was able to get a cow, because, um, uh, the alias I were being jerks about that, too. <laughs> oh, I see, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I did, I did wonder a little, because he does, he does crawl his way up, and even though they don't seem to have any time or patience for him at all, <laughs> except the, the one guy who trains him isn't, too bad he kind of likes him but all the others just like are doing everything to ca to sabotage him constantly yeah yeah, yeah. um basically uh it, it was born uh it, it didn't look like the the, the uh, calf was going to survive so they uh the the person uh, giving them said oh amaro can have this one you know like an intentional uh to upset him right and amaro yeah. runs away and then he, he meets with a supernatural uh figure uh, who says that uh, um, you rejected this calf the same way that the Ilyasai rejected you, and how do you feel about that? Um, so Amara returns and takes care of the calf, and the calf ends up surviving. Mm, right. Um, and that's Ku Kulu, his d beloved Yeah, which cattle. means friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, though I believe they, they say that in the in the book, that it, that's the Ilyasai language. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, uh, so uh, Imaro uh, is in this ritualistic combat with the lion, uh, and Imaro slays it in a way that no Ilyasai has ever been able to before. And, you know, there's witnesses, because this is... But uh, the witnesses immediately turn on him and think that he ran away, and they had to kill the lion. Because um, they've been... Their minds have been clouded with... Uh, um, let's see. Uh, Sorcerer, yeah. The Machawi. Uh, yeah. Mchawe. Mchawe, uh, yeah, dark, dark magic. Yes. Yeah, the the uh, the magic um, that uh, comes from the Mashatan. Um, yeah. So yeah, they're, this was they're, this uh, was sorry. The guy was uh, this is the the sorcerer of the tribe of Yase, and his name is Mutasi. Was that his name? Uh, I didn't write that down. Sorry. Yeah, there's there's he meet he is meeting sorcerers who try to mess with him and. This one, but this is the one he actually grew up among the Alessi was, and his name is Mutasi. But he's he's sort of a puppet of someone else, as we learn in a minute. Yeah, shortly. a puppet of the one who was um, uh, banished by his mother. Right, Chitendu. Uh, that name I do remember. He's kind of his his arch nemesis for a bit. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, yeah, and they all like they're they're gonna shave him. They shave Amaro's head because. Uh, that's uh women shave their heads in this tribe and so that's a shameful thing and they imprison him and um um and uh uh he, he ends up escaping and um uh tracking down you know what what happened and, and finding um sorry what was the uh, uh the guy's name was Ch chitendu chitendu is the, is thank the evil you. sorcerer yeah who, who so, his, his mother was engaged to, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, who has uh, now morphed into, uh, through his use of the dark magic, has morphed into like a Lovecraftian abomination. Um, 
he has a human head but his uh like two elephant legs and uh his arms are all warped and his his belly is all covered in green like worm like tent tendrils that constantly squirm around like they have a different brain um it's very grossly described in in a good way yeah. and he can shoot green fire out of him to, to yeah. Hurt him. yeah um so uh uh and and amaro has a a, a conversation with him where uh inchindu uh, uh reveals his um you know his evil plan and stuff and Amaro's able to take him down um uh and uh, it seems the the alias side actually followed Amaro here and they overheard it so um now they they see and and now they can remember how Miss uh Amaro actually didn't run away from his uh uh fight with the lion and uh they they say you know we'll accept you into the tribe but at this point Amaro's just been rejected too much and he he decides to reject them instead um and there's a, a touching moment where uh he's walking away and they start uh singing the song of triumph for him and he hesitates for a second but then just continues on without looking back yeah that's cool um speaking of taking a break and not looking back uh it's time for some ads so uh we'll be right back on what mad universe if you're a shrewd shopper it's about to be your favorite time of the year HyperX will be running massive sales for the holiday season get up to 50 percent off some of our most popular products like the ultra comfy cloud 2 headset the tough responsive alloy origins mechanical keyboard and the fan favorite quadcast usb microphone Sales will be going on at all major e-tailers, but be sure to head for HyperX.com and sign up for the newsletter to get the scoop on the biggest deals. Happy holidays from HyperX. Take a time machine back to before the world went to hell, around the year 2000. The 80s and 90s were so rad. The movies, the music, the TV, the games, that's what I want to talk about. If you're cool enough, join us and listen to Less Than 2000, because that's all we talk about. Adam and Chad live Less Than 2000, now part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, th- this is sort of the, the opening bit. There, there's also... Um, uh, uh, another bit where he fought another uh, evil wizard um, from a, a different tribe um, who had um, um, what, what's that that condition where you have um, uh, patches of uh, mental vitiligo, I believe it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, when uh, Imaro kills him, there, there's um, um, that that wizard his dying lines is I had to show them the people of my tribe that. I was better than them, even though they wouldn't accept it. And uh, Imaro reflects that, yeah, I know right. that feeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We are more alike than we know kind of thing. Yeah. We're not yeah. so different, you and I. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, the the guy was still evil and all. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> not excusing his actions, but it's still... Um, uh, there, there's moments of uh, self-reflection in these books that's that I find really interesting. Like, there's a lot of interiority to, to Amaro. Um, he's... He's a very um, stock character in a lot of ways. Like he's, you know, the 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 grim, gruff. Um, he's really good at fighting, right? Like the absolute best warrior ever, and he, he instantly. I mean, it's some 
there's there's some fights that are challenges, but he yeah. mostly um, um, is just like the yeah, he's, best single fighter there is. Yeah, um, it's the Nietzschean thing. He's this is very this is actually interesting because it like on a, another level it sort of highlights the Robert E. Howard ideas, which uh, Robert E. Howard inspired a lot of imitators. There's a bunch of like mostly forgotten barbarian style heroes, uh, both around Howard's time, but also like when he was revived kind of in the sixties and seventies, there's like a million barbarians at the time. And it's a very, um, it's two things. One is sort of, yeah, it's a Nietzschean idea of like triumph of the will, so to speak, uh, obviously not a great phrase to use. Um, but like just the idea of like, cause he's so, he has so much will and he's so strong. He can rise above these circumstances that are always pushing him down. And there's always just this constant drumbeat of like tragedy and bleakness and, and rejection and, and misery like that affect their protagonist i mean that's a that's going a little strongly like conan has moments of of actually with conan it's not always that bad um conan is supposed to have been fleeing some kind of never defined tragedy in his homeland of samaria uh we never really find out what in the howard stories at least what happened possible some of the later writers fleshed it out uh but like uh i believe elsprog de camp wrote some other conan stories uh but um but yeah he's he's it's this sort of like bleak and and cynical not quite nihilistic but negative view of society where people will betray you or the people you love who actually do love you will die and they'll bad things will happen to them including you know women often getting uh like people the people you love will die and so forth you can see a lot of that in this like there's definitely a sense of like boy this guy just can't catch a break you know but he's so strong and powerful he overcomes it um i did like when he finds a a, a girlfriend at the end of the first book i hope <laughs> i hope she's okay he finds a uh, she's a, a okay princess. as far as i've read yeah N- what's her name N- natasa um uh, T- uh once T- tanisha tanisha yeah um so she, yeah he finds a, a girl who's a, actually a princess who was kidnapped uh, uh, for ransom no no not a princess she's from the shikaza tribe which is a um a tribe known for their absolutely beautiful women. Um, right. Just everybody, like it, it, the line whenever somebody sees her, uh, he had heard stories about the beauty of Shikaza women, but he saw yeah. that the, the stories did not live up to the reality. Like that yeah. line happens a lot. It, it's a little bit repetitive. but Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. So I thought they said she was from like noble blood or whatever, but she's certainly like one of the most prized members of that tribe. Yeah, so, so the tribe sort of raises their, their women to be, uh, given out to uh, kings and and emperors because they're they're known for their beauty. And they're sort of raised to to as courtesans, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I mean, in a sense, that is what princesses are actually. But uh, but yeah, no, they're they're under in demand essentially. Anyway, so and you and uh, you know you worry that um, when uh, uh, in that story, um, uh, Imaro's part of a bandit uh, troop and they. Um, at that point well i'm sorry i'm jumping ahead but um they uh, kidnap her and uh when the the leader of the bandits is uh, defeated imaro imaro's already in love with her and they get together and thank god he finally gets a non-toxic relationship at that point um or a, a woman who isn't killed horribly um so you know it, it it was nice that once he got away from the Ilyasa, he started to develop better relationships he also falls in with a tribe called the uh mbue mbue uh in the river uh in the jungles uh and they're 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 good to him and nice to him at first um or they are but then they get um he gets kidnapped away from them and they they actually get uh 
killed by uh, by raiders, or a lot of them do. Yeah, uh, this it, section apparently the version we read uh, that's uh, the version that's that's available to buy now is different from the one from eighty one. Apparently, rewrote this section because originally it was uncomfortably close to the Rwandan genocide. He felt, oh, which happened geez. later, like after he wrote the story, but like yeah. afterwards he sort of thought this is a little uh, too real, so uh, he changed. Um, I believe it's the section with the um, idol um, right. that comes to life. Um, uh, so that's apparently new to, to the edition that we read. Okay. I don't know All exactly right. what happens in the one, other one, but apparently it was because of Rwanda that he changed it. I see. So, like, yeah, war between the, the tribes on the river, that would make a certain amount of sense. But, uh, yeah, in this case, they're captured by the ba- the same ba- that's that's strange because it's so it flows so naturally that he's kidnapped by the bandits and that's how he gets taken into the bandit and bandit troop and joins them yeah um, i'm i'm not sure exactly i think this is the section that uh, uh, information's a little sketchy on on the earlier editions but so yeah yeah he becomes like uh leader king of the the haramia which are a bandit tribe um and then they go to war with uh, the combined forces of zania and zanj uh, Azania and Zanj, um, uh, who basically, uh, through trickery, managed to defeat the Haramia. And uh, Imaro's, uh, uh, they, they all abandon, all the remaining ones abandon Amaro, and uh, Tanisha gets kidnapped, and Amaro has to go and rescue her. Um, and that's how the first book ends, sort of on a, a cliffhanger. Um, right. Which, luckily, he saves her early on in the next book. <laughs> Um, sorry, a lot, lot of, lot of characters to keep track of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he keeps, yeah. Like a Conan story. Like Co- that was the thing about Conan when Robert E. Howard created him. It was kind of like a guy who he could insert into any pseudo history, like, and he created a, a setting that was all history all at once. And then a character who he could drop into any historical story and he didn't have to get the details right basically because it was a fantasy version. Um, so he's like Conan is a, for a while, he's a writer with a, like a Middle Eastern, uh, uh, tri- tribe of raiders, which this is kind of paralleling in in Amaro. Uh, but you know he's a thief for a while. Uh, you know, pirate. obviously he becomes a, he's a pirate. Yeah, he's a pirate with a, alongside a pirate queen. They become lovers. Um, he becomes king eventually, as we all know. That's almost right early on. The stories aren't in chronological order. Um, so he's got all these different sort of jobs, but he he keeps showing up at all these different places that are the equivalent of a a, a real world culture, and then. Uh, he he adopts himself into them very quickly, so he becomes the equivalent of like an Arabian sheikh uh, or a or a Bedouin, uh, uh, ra- I guess a raider, not necessarily a, a sheikh themselves. Uh, but then the um, yeah, so it's, it, it's you see that happening here too. You can see how Amaro's going through these different like <laughs> changes in his career, as it were. He keeps shifting from place to place, or at least that seems like what he's setting up here. So he really is like Saunders really knew. Howard, and he was definitely writing, like, re- essentially rewriting Howard in conversation with him in an interesting way, I thought. Yeah. So uh, you were talking about uh, how you liked that Amaro had a girlfriend, and, and yeah, she lives through the second book. Uh, she's alive and well at the end of the second book. Um, hopefully she survives the next two. Um, <laughs> yeah. He also gets a friend named Pomphis, a uh, pygmy from the uh, 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 Bambuti tribe. Um who was uh, raised in Kush, um, or uh, no, sorry, he, he lived in Kush for, uh, but he, he was also a jester at one point, and yeah, uh, he's sort of a, a talkative guy who's um, knows everything. He 
his ability is he comes from a tribe that um uh was from a forest and they they sort of memorized every leaf on the tree and that's how they got by and you know like they they memorized their surroundings sort of similar to um Imaro has uh the Iliasai training gives him the uh, uh Kufahuma sense which is sort of like a spider sense um right where it, it mainly works in the in the plains where he grew up but he, he understands like the little bit of a ripple means there's there's danger coming from some air you know he's right. just so in tune with his surroundings but he, he does manage to to reset it when he goes into different settings um right. though it often <clears throat> takes him a while yeah yeah uh actually this this was billed as him being a black uh black jungle hero but he's not actually like the jungle's yeah. his second least favorite place to be in yeah, I, I I read him much more as a black Conan than a black Tarzan. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's obviously a large inter- overlap between those two characters. There, like Conan was obviously inspired heavily by Tarzan, uh, but Conan is more just sort of like a um, a warrior uh, in antiquity, whereas Conan uh, Tarzan is more an adventurer who grew up in the jungle. So yeah, the yeah. original tagline for the for the novel version of this said, "The epic novel of a black Tarzan," and the Burroughs estate uh was mad at that so uh it delayed publishing which uh, uh caused problems uh with sales um yeah these these books have not had a lot of luck with sales but we'll right. get into that yeah. after we um yeah. so well, yeah Pontus, yeah. he, he meant his tribe can sort of memorize everything um so that that aids him when he learns how to read he he knows he remembers every word he's ever read um so he's He's known as the uh, the little man with the um, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but basically, little guy, big mouth. <laughs> uh, and he's a really fun character. Like he's not like it. Th- this sort of character could be obnoxious, like the the funny sidekick. But he he has um, he has a lot of good moments and a, a good um, uh, back and forth with both Amaro and Tanisha. Like Tanisha and him don't get along at first. They they sort of view each other. Both uh, Pompus and Tanisha sort of view the other one as a threat to their relationship with Amaro, but they eventually realize that they're they're all sort of necessary to to keep Amaro human. And that, that's something they they talk about a lot in the second book. With uh, Amaro's just such a tough guy, and he, he has it's hinted some sort of supernatural like his birth is is somehow um supernatural so he might be like literally more than human i i don't right. know but yeah. um um and um uh having having the like an actual uh even small community of uh a family if you will um does uh help keep him grounded and i think that's that's mm. a interesting um aspect to it that's cool, yeah. Um, and I mentioned uh, self-reflection with the uh, with the wizard who uh, sort of had a similar um, um, least motivation of of proving everybody right. There's one story in the uh, the second book where um, they have to deal with a um, uh, people who have been cursed um, to have uh, deformed children, and the deformed children are immortal, and they're like like hideously deformed, like they they have like uh, um one of them's a giant with like um one set of legs and two bodies um or they have like uh other people growing out of them or you know that sort of yeah um and uh they they 
have uh, they're trying to uh, breed themselves into having uh, children who aren't like them. Um, and uh, uh, at the after Amaro defeats them, um, uh, he actually gets like legitimately sad because he realizes their struggles are actually much worse than mine. <laughs> like um, I, I was I was uh, I grew up in a in a culture that that hated me, but these people hate themselves. They they can't stand to look at themselves in the mirrors. They, you know, um, and, and that sort of uh, moment of self-reflection, and it really seems to shake him quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that as the stories went on, they get a little more like the the, the early stories have a very simple character, like that this guy's evil and and Imaro uh, uh, has to defeat him, and you know, like it's and this guy hates him, but he'll overcome him, sort of thing. Uh, but then as they went on, there started to be a bit more complexity to the characters. It's still like good guys and bad guys, but it it, it did start to investigate interesting dynamics in some ways, like that. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so that's cool to hear that it keeps going like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it seems uh, and, and also the character was very young in the first book, and uh, he's still in his early twenties in the in the second book. So uh, this is a kid, you know. Yeah. In terms of age, though, he's mm-hmm. you know had to do growing up fast. Right. Well, they talk about how he's so huge and muscular and powerful that they don't um, that that people forget how young he is, basically, right? Yeah. Oh, there's also a bit uh, towards the beginning of the uh, the second book where where Pompheus tells a joke after a, um, a stressful uh, situation, and Amaro starts laughing, and um, he just like uncontrollably and he can't stop. And Pompheus thinks to himself, "This man has never laughed before," and the narration said he was right. <laughs> um, like this is a intense guy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's good. That, that like, yeah, they, that he's got that variation in tone and, and character, and he understands that. It's not like Robert E. Howard was. You know, it's hard to believe. I mean, supposedly Conan does laugh and stuff, but but Howard was very self serious and self important about the character. You know, he didn't he didn't have a lot of. It's actually interesting because there were uh, parts in uh, Conan that, like, especially the early stories, like he wanted. He actually wrote a paragraph about how Conan had a drinking problem, basically, and also um, he talked about how. Sorry, no, sorry. Uh, he mentioned he had a drinking problem here and there, but it's usually just played off as, oh, he's a hearty warrior who drinks a lot. But he does sort of imply at one point, he did imply at one point that, like, Conan had a bit of trouble, like, he drank too much. <laughs> like, it wasn't just, you know, haha, good old Conan. It was like, yeah, he might have a drinking problem at a time when people didn't necessarily understand that. I mean, the 20s, not the, the Hyborian age. And then there's also a part where... um uh, in I think the first Conan story where he talks about having like what is clearly depression symptoms and they were probably Robert E. Howard writing his own symptoms into the story uh, and the the uh, the editor had him cut that paragraph and it seems like the editor kept pushing Conan to be more like superhuman and not have any flaws and just be and, and take out any sort of thing nuance that might weaken the character but Howard seemed to have that kind of idea in the in the back of his mind when he was writing the character basically. Um, so it's interesting to see it come out a little more in stories like this with a, you know, a super Nietzsche and super strong barbarian character. Yeah. Though, uh, again, like it sort of starts to deconstruct it with, uh, with Pompheus and Tanisha and like he, he needs the, the community the family. He can't just do this on his own mm-hmm. or else he'll just lose himself in the, in the, you know, bloodshed right. and so on. Um, 
there's a running bit in the first book where um, um, after a section would say like the the weapon is being forged and you know like so like as as he's being as he's right. uh, reaching maturity or there was a mm-hmm. flaw in the forging or the yeah, weapon yeah. has been unsheathed in the second yeah. book um, the, the sort of the quest is him um, uh, him and uh, uh, he pompous um, uh, discovers Amaro and thinks that he's like a chosen one sort of figure um, who will uh, uh, stop the um, uh, Mashatan from from fully taking over Nyambani um, and uh, wants to go to Kush which is like um, uh, presented as like uh, uh, I don't know the Gondor or the you know that sort of thing um, okay. um, and so that the story is about trying to get there um, and various obstacles that come in the way, like uh, um, they they have to get money, so he he gets involved in um, in fighting tournaments, uh, which introduces a character named uh, uh, Chang Li, who's a Chinese Shaolin monk. Um, not in those words, but that's what he is. <laughs> so there yeah. there's a there's a fun fight scene where where Imaro fights this um, uh, tiny little uh, martial artist who's and they're they're basically on equal terms. Amaro ends up winning, but just barely. Mm. Um, and and again, um, uh, Saunders, uh, you can, I, I can really see why uh, boxing was, um, why he was um, uh, so well regarded uh, with his knowledge about boxing because he's really good at writing fight scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're very strong, clear sort of action writing. Yeah, uh, you can tell what's going on while at the same time it it moves at a, a good, exciting pace. Um, yeah. He's really, he obviously understands how, like, you know, punching works <laughs> Yeah, in ways that maybe I don't. <laughs> I, I did want to talk about uh, why it, it um, had problems uh, reaching audiences. Basically, it was uh, deemed too black by sci-fi audiences and too white by um like he tried to get um advertisements in like rap magazines and stuff because he thought this is a good market to reach but they thought it was it was too white because it was too you know outside of you know fantasy's a white thing um mm. and and it's really unfortunate because i think there is an audience for this sort of thing out there but um like how do you reach that i i don't know mm-hmm. yeah it would be tricky I yeah, mean, so yeah. Uh, all the books went out of uh, uh, print. Um, two of them uh, ended up uh, being republished, but uh, the second two aren't. Um, he also uh, wrote another series. Um, uh, there's two books, neither of which are in print, uh, called uh, Dasoye, uh, which is a female character in the same setting. And apparently there were plans to eventually cross them over. Um, but I haven't read those. Oh. I've but uh, it, it sounds interesting. So it's a female warrior character. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, there's also one called Nyambani Tales, which I just discovered is available, and I, but I didn't read it. So sorry yeah. about that, folks. But it seems yeah, to be um, uh, set in the setting, but uh, Imaro's not in them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's well. That so okay. So that's kind of interesting that he kept writing. Yeah, he kept writing in the setting. That's 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 kind of cool. And, yeah, um, the last tomorrow he, book was actually written in um, in uh, two thousand nine. Um, yeah, 
and uh, he got a deal with a um, uh, a site called Lulu, which uh, publishes online books. Um, and apparently they, they also publish the, the other Imaro books on there. None of them are on there anymore. You search for uh, Charles Saunders or Charles R. Saunders, uh, you just get some, some of his boxing books. So mm-hmm. I don't know what happened there, but it's... Yeah. Well, it might, uh, my, it might be lost media. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. That that well, my understanding is, and I part of the reason we kind of tackled this uh, is that they are apparently in development on an Amaro. What was it a television series? Um, yes. And- a, a guy named uh, I believe it's pronounced Tack Kirksey, um, who is a uh, producer for for new shows on MSNBC and other um, things in in media. Uh, knew uh, uh, Saunders personally towards the end of his life. He was a fan, and he, he reached out to him, um, and uh, they they met on occasions and corresponded. Uh, and uh, Kirksey made a promise to Saunders that he would get Imaro adapted into a movie or TV show. He's been trying since then to do that, and a, he says he's close so to to reaching hmm. a deal. So hopefully, yeah, he was that on happens. Twitter not long ago, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, saying that it basically it was going to pilot or something. Uh, anyway, he which said is he's interesting. he's close to a deal, but. Who knows? Uh-huh. I, it's I great material. Right. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, and it, we're at a time when fantasy is just constantly being adopted. Uh, adapted. Uh, this is a really great uh, source material. I mean, in some ways, it's more. I mean, Conan is the iconic one, but this this would let it kind of let you do a lot of the Conan stuff with uh, getting away from some of the dated uh, elements and some of the problematic elements. Um, and yeah, it would just and it's just a really good story, you know. So and, uh, let's hope that does happen. And it would mean the other books would get back in print yeah exactly <laughs> if is, nothing else yeah they can announce it get them back in print and then yeah, yeah even if it doesn't so, happen uh, at least we got the saunders other books. <laughs> uh, uh after the uh paper he worked for and he was primarily uh known uh as a reporter throughout his life um this was like an important thing for him the the amaro stories and the other fiction he wrote but uh, that wasn't what he was primarily known for until after his death really by people who knew him and stuff um uh apparently after the the paper closed he became quite reclusive like he was already sort of a a little bit of a reclusive guy but uh um his house didn't have a a internet connection or a phone line he would go to the library once a week to to catch up with people basically uh, uh, to catch up with people over the internet um Mm. uh and uh um i believe it was kirksey uh told a story of um uh visiting him and and having to like sort of break into his house to see if he was okay <laughs> yeah because he oh, couldn't wow. get in contact with him so yeah um he unfortunately uh passed away in 2020 after some uh health issues uh i don't think it was covid but uh yeah um so and, and there was sort of uh there's a lot of articles from from around that time of people sort of rediscovering his work and um and that that at least is is good. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I well, highly I... recommend these these stories. It's in, very well written. It's uh, it, it's top tier pulp fantasy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope that that we do eventually get a, at least a bit of a renaissance here. I mean, hey, let's not forget. Uh, you know, Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft got forgotten for a few decades before they were uh, brought back up uh, decades later. So uh, it could happen with this as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to read the rest of this because, uh, <laughs> I was enjoying it. 
<laughs> maybe we'll do a follow-up episode if that ever happens so yeah. yeah i mean i would like to yeah um uh, i just wanted to uh one more thing about uh because our outro won't make sense without it uh there, there's um uh a um uh stylistic thing that that i enjoyed uh um in in terms of the narration it would say things like jua the sun um like use the the uh, Nyambanian word or the local language word um and then define it and it sounds like it could be repetitive but it, it gives a nice cadence to it mm. or um cool. uh chewy the the hyena or was Chewie the leopard yeah. or the hyena? Chewie's the leopard. Chewie's the leopard. Uh, Ngoro is the hyena, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Or uh, um, Ngatu the, the lion. Or, Ngatu yeah. the lion. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, again, um, it, there, there's sort of a flow. And it's also like um, I'm out in the jungle hunting for Chewie the leopard. Like as if it's a like the the idea of the leopard is is personified as yeah like a synecdoche sort of thing yeah exactly they have a persona and they're a name like they're his pal or at least yeah. someone he knows about or his enemy know. or you know whatever yeah yeah um like i said good books check them out very cool uh well joe the sun is setting over the endless grasslands of the tamborere and the pale light of uh Imweso, the moon will soon be above us we have been Philip Rice, the podcaster, and Adam Prosser, the other podcaster. Our producer was Alex Ross of Atland, Dark Priest of the Mashatan, but an otherwise okay guy. And our theme music was chanted by Jack Fierick in celebration of us killing Ngatu the Lion. Um, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L, or Adam Prosser with two S's, or ma- what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok A for Philip. However long that lasts. So until the next rain, the weapon is sheathed.